do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. You're going to listen to an interview with Les Sabo, Director of Constructive Capital at Dr. Bronner's. We discussed what a soap company is doing in the regenerative agriculture space and why they are, as a non-food company, actually got so much involved and are at the forefront of this movement. Les is going to explain why it makes so much sense and why they don't want to be anywhere else at this moment. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why am I focused on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture. More depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! Welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered. I'm Kun van Seyen, your host. Today I'm joined by Les Zabo, Director of Constructive Capital at Dr. Bronner's, the top-selling brand of natural soap in North America. Les oversees business development activities for the company, which includes impact investing, philanthropy, and commercial support of Dr. Bronner's global supply chain projects. Welcome, Les. Thank you very much for inviting us. And to start with a personal question, um, which actually is in two parts. One, how did you personally get into this space of, of natural cosmetics, and regenerative agriculture. And of course, I would love to hear also how Dr. Bronner's from a soap company uh, started as a soap company, but also is now really looking at this regenerative agriculture space. I think that your audience is both European as well as North American. So maybe just a bit in terms of backstory here. The company is family owned and operated. It was founded by Emmanuel Bronner in 1948. And it was actually founded as a religious nonprofit, but the IRS didn't agree with that designation. So we paid a huge amount in back taxes and eventually became a corporation. And now we're a registered benefit corporation, but still with a, a very strong social mission. And the company is today run by Emmanuel's grandsons, David and Mike Bronner. And they still take their role as stewards of their grandfather's vision uh, very seriously. And the company is as mission driven as when it was first founded. Today, we give away roughly 40% of our profits, equivalent to about 8.4% of our revenue, to activism and philanthropy. This last year, in 2016, that translated to about $9 million. And we have a number of key issue areas that we focus on. Uh, uh, and regenerative agriculture is one of our, our most important issue areas. But also, 
the other areas that we focus on in terms of our giving uh, include animal advocacy, uh, the environment, uh, drug policy reform, and also criminal justice reform. And historically, most of our giving has been via 501c3 activity as well as a C4 activity in the political realm. And sorry, just for the, the European audience, what does that mean? C3 is a registered nonprofit, and a C4 is also a nonprofit, but it is focused more on political and policy work. So we've been doing impact investing via our own supply chain since mid-2000s, but the philanthropic investing uh, really outside of our supply chain is, is relatively new for us, and, and we could talk about examples of both if that's interesting. Yeah, definitely. I think that the journey of, of the company starting to, to, I think, how agriculture got into the, the company seems to be through the supply chain, right? That was the the, the trigger to, to look at that system because you are, of course, taking supplies from somewhere and then usually somewhere from a farm. Was that the trigger that, that led to a focus on how we treat the land and, and all the people on it. We use predominantly agricultural raw materials for, for our soaps and our, our personal care products. And that includes coconut oil, palm oil, uh, olive oil as the main fatty oils. And then we also have, based on our different fragrances, we use uh, uh, many different uh, essential oils. Uh, peppermint being the largest volume just because that's the most popular fragrance that we sell. In terms of the interest in regenerative ag and how that developed, yes, for sure, it was triggered by the, the kind of supply chain issues and the fact that even though we're a personal care company, we, we do have this agricultural supply chain. It's important to mention that really the company sees regenerative ag as a potential solution for a number of these issue areas uh, that we've been involved in for, for many years. So in addition to the environmental issues, We've been involved in animal welfare, fair labor, fair trade, uh, rural economic development, and public health. And historically, these have been very distinct movements. And for the first time, we see this sort of confluence around regenerative agriculture as a potential solution for many of these larger uh, societal problems. Sort of umbrella of, of yeah, or the underlying root system underneath it, yeah. It may be useful to just mention our own definition of regenerative ag, since there's quite a few that are, are floating around these days. For us, it, it's obviously about sequestering carbon and uh, into the soil and, and reversing climate change. But it's also about providing economic stability for farmers, ranchers, farm workers. And then also critical is the animal welfare component. And then just in general, it's really about creating these more resilient ecosystems and communities. So whether it's an investment in our own supply chain or it's more of a philanthropic investment, we're really looking at things from that community perspective and trying to incorporate all of those different elements and living systems, whether it's you know the farm or the community or the soil really the, the the entire macro picture on what's going on in terms of that agro ecosystem. Which is something that really fits you as a company, I think, from, from what I read, the beginning of the company and the, the level of consciousness you have, it's almost impossible not to do it as a, as a holistic or as an ecosystem approach. 
Emmanuel Bronner was a, a real pioneer in that sense. The company has a term called constructive capitalism, uh, which is where we give back to the people and the earth that help us make that profit. And, and, and that sort of philosophy was there from the company's origin. And back in the 50s, the DuPont mantra was better living through chemistry. And back then, the formulations were all about natural ingredients. And you know, now everything has pretty much come full circle. And the pioneering work that he did back in the 50s and 60s is, is seems to have caught on in, in more of a mass market way. Not only the product, but obviously the, the consciousness and, and what that means and how you run a business. Yeah, you were definitely very, very early, but it seems to be that you're on, on serving the right wave. You're definitely at the front of, of this movement and, and are, are capturing a lot of that uh, energy and, and uh, a lot of the, the direction actually shaping it as well. And, and do, I don't know if you were part of the, the company. I don't think you, you were, but do you know or do you remember the, the first time that you really stepped into investing in your supply chain that you went from just taking the resources from a partner farm or a partner to actually becoming a proper partner and, and co-investing or investing uh, with an agriculture partner to, to shape up that company and, and make some steps in hopefully a regenerative way. In terms of regenerative ag investing, the supply chain obviously is where your sphere of influence is greatest. And, and that was our starting point. And in our supply chain, we use roughly 5,000 metric tons of, of these raw materials a year, these agricultural raw materials. And the first step was really in 2003 when the company decided to go certified organic for all the major raw materials. Was there a trigger for that or what was the... The decision, was there something that triggered that or was it a process that was obvious to go at some point? And 2003 was the year to do it. Well, it was, it was more about growing these raw materials without polluting the earth or, or poisoning farmers and, and farm workers. When you look at the level of pesticides and, and herbicides and, and synthetic inputs, I mean, it was environmental, obviously, but for us, it was also very much a, a social issue in that how these synthetics were impacting farmers and farm workers. Even with the organic certification, we realized that that didn't give us enough transparency into our supply chain and the social and economic conditions of our producers. And organic certification really does not have any substantive uh, social criteria attached to it. So technically, a product could be certified organic and it could be made using some type of forced labor. So for us, the, the next level would be to figure out how we can increase this transparency and, and work directly with farmers on the ground and, and understand those conditions that they're operating in. So uh, about 2007 is, is when we made the commitment to go fair trade. And back in that time, when we made the commitment to go fair trade, there were no sources of organic fair trade coconut oil and palm oil. So essentially, we built these projects ourselves. You were forced to be the impact investor there. We, we were forced to, exactly. And it, it wasn't any sort of grand design to be vertically integrated. That wasn't really the intention. No, you just needed good raw materials and you wanted to be sure that the value chain was clean, as clean as possible. So you had to create it yourself. Exactly. The first project was in Sri Lanka, and it grew out of a tsunami relief project. 
And the, the gentleman who launched that project, his name is Gary Lazan, and he's, uh, he's now our director of special operations. And he built that project from the ground up, and he is, and, and also built our project in Ghana from the ground up. And today he oversees all of our, our major supply chain projects. But that project in Sri Lanka is currently 1,100 farmers and 18,000 acres of uh, certified organic land. And the mill staff is around 300 people. So we're producing about 2,000 metric tons a year. And that entity by itself is, is doing roughly 10 million in sales. So it, uh, we buy from the project, um, but there's also other like-minded brands that very much understand what's going on there on the ground and, and the uh, community impact that we've had that uh, buy from that operation as well. And, and are you, I, I will definitely share the, the video uh, there, on, the, which is on YouTube in the description of the podcast because it's truly amazing. I mean, your your description is already interesting, but I think if you see the 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 video of it and the impact that the tsunami had, and now what what grew out of that as a company is is truly truly impressive. What's your relationship with the company? Are you an investor? Are you partly owner, or are you just between brackets uh, um, have a supply relationship now with them? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. We're an owner of the company. So th th there's three projects that we own and operate ourselves. Serendipol, the project in Sri Lanka, is one. Uh, the second is the project in Ghana, which is palm oil. And then we just launched uh, a joint venture in Samoa to produce the cosmetics-grade coconut oil. This is a joint venture with a, a local company. Oh, wow. Okay, so you really got involved and, and set it up and are still running it, basically, as a separate entity. They're wholly owned subsidy. Well, the joint venture obviously is. Yeah, obviously not. But the other two entities are majority owned by Dr. Bronner's, and it's a sister company that's a, a sort of holding company for all, all of our supply chain projects. It's called Surrender World. So these projects sit under that entity. And, and yet when you, so you dove into your supply chain and, and started to really clean it up and started to even, in this case, also supply to others, which of course gets your impact amplifies your impact quite a lot and yet you decided to focus even more on agriculture and even to look beyond cosmetics and, and start to push the boundaries of um, of food of the food sector as well what triggered that and and how much of a push can we can we are we going to see dr bronner food at some point or what's going to be your role in in that uh, food space in, instead of just the cosmetic space which is of course huge but still a part of a much bigger system yeah, well, the, the project in Sri Lanka is producing a food-grade coconut oil. So originally, that project, the idea was to provide a primary source for our cosmetics-grade oil because the, the coconut oil is, is the primary ingredient in our soaps. Uh, but because the, the capacity of that operation uh, was so significant, 
um, we realized we had the opportunity to do food grade oil as well. And, and the whole sort of coconut oil trend was just taking off. So, so we already are in the food space. Um, and we are, uh, there is a possibility that we could do other food products. That's a sort of ongoing internal conversation about which direction our new product development is going to head. Because you mentioned food-grade oil and cosmetic-grade oil, what's the difference? Because the Samoa one is going to do cosmetic-grade oil, right? Is there, which one is more difficult to get? Is it the food one or the, the cosmetic one? Or depends it on the coconut? The food-grade is virgin coconut oil. So that's a, a much higher quality product. Okay. And the cosmetics-grade oil is produced and, and then refined. And if you look at um, the impact investing ecosystem, which you are part of because you are also an impact investor. And um, what, what do you see the role could be for impact investors that are hopefully all listening to to this podcast that want to get into the regenerative agriculture space? And you are a family company, family owned company. I don't think there are any plans, but correct me if I'm wrong, to, to get impact investors or any type of investors into the company. But do you see a role in the ecosystem that you are part of for, for impact investors? And, and if yes, what, what would that role be? Yeah, we definitely are beginning our, our journey in terms of projects that are straight impact, like I said, philanthropic uh, investing, which is separate from our own supply chain. I could just mention a couple of the projects that we're working on right now. One is with White Oak Pastures. Will Harris, the, the owner, is, is one of the top regenerative livestock farmers in the country. He's amazing. I mean, he has an incredibly high bar operation on, on so many levels. Uh, on the ruminant side, everything is, is grass-fed, grass-finished. So Will is the only farm in the country that's um, step five plus on uh, global animal partnerships, animal welfare rating system. Oh, wow. I mean, he is very much thinking in terms of this larger ecosystem in terms of animals, in terms of the soil. His soil organic matter has gone from less than 1% um, to as much as, as 5%. Um, so he's improved the soil fertility immensely. And we saw an opportunity to work with him. There was one I, that we identified mutually that we thought we could assist in, which is the animal feed question. On the ruminant side, you have lots of momentum with grass-fed beef, and you have really great work being done by Cienega Capital and, and Tomcat Ranch and Armonia. These impact investors have done a lot to create the right infrastructure for growth in the grass-fed beef sector. And I think the growth is around 25-30% a year, and it's up to five or six or seven percent of total beef purchases in the U.S. So the, the, there is momentum there. And I think from a consumer perspective, it's the idea of grass-fed beef is pretty straightforward. And yes, there are issues related to certifications and, and standards, and you do have some players that are cheating. But for the ruminant side, most people understand what they're getting when they purchase a grass-fed beef or meat product. Where we see a larger challenge is on the monogastric side. So that's with the pigs and the chickens. And when you think about pastured poultry, from a consumer perspective, 
you're assuming, or, or sort of the implication is that that chicken is eating grass and bugs, you know, eating off the land, which is actually not the case. And both in terms of chicken as well as pigs, those animals' diets are 80 plus percent supplemental feed. And if that feed is coming off farm and it's coming from uh, soy corn monocultures. We didn't fix anything, basically. Exactly. I mean, if you look from that sort of broader macro perspective, then that is the farthest thing from being regenerative. And so what we're working on with Will right now, because his chicken and and pig feed is from off farm, it's from a conventional source um, in Georgia. We'd like to see, and and Will would like to see as well, full holistic kind of closed loop system in terms of his operation. And so we are helping him finance the purchase of a large parcel of land adjacent to his property that's going to allow him to uh, grow his own grains and, 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 and produce his own feed. And so um, and that is that also where the feed mill comes in. Exactly. You would have his own feed mill and he would then be producing regenerative organic feed for his animals. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's extremely interesting. A lot of people, like you mentioned, seem to forget that pigs and poultry are not necessarily grass eaters or or cannot feed themselves only with bugs. And I actually had Emmer and Co., the founder, Jesse, on the podcast, I think half a year ago, I mentioned that as one of his biggest challenges. They are, they are selling poultry of, of regenerative farms and heritage poultry and, and the, the the feed issue and not being able to purchase the feed you want or produce the feed you want, but in this case, purchase it, is really holding him back on on that journey of, of regener- regenerative agriculture. So it seems a huge get, missing. And so when you have helped him purchase that land and also get that feed mill up and running, what would be the next step? Is there a bigger role for you to play in the feed mill discussion in, in the U.S.? I should also mention another project that we're working on with a new venture called Regenerative Organic Fee Company. This is a team of folks that formerly worked with Coyote Creek Ranch in Texas. And uh, Cameron Mulberg, who is the principal there, is really an incredible feed formulator. And uh, Cameron's and his partners are looking to establish regional feed mills across the country. So the first one would be in Georgia. The second one would be in California. And this is all based on regenerative organic principles and practices. So that's a separate investment from our project with Will. But we see the need for more economic, but at the same time, regenerative organic feed, because there are a lot of pastured poultry operators who want to make that switch to organic regenerative, but right now they they just can't afford it. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, somebody has to supply this as well, which is extremely interesting. And is that a place, or or not maybe these specific projects, but in general projects like these that you will, I'm sure will develop and keep developing many more of these, are those places where you would like to work with impact investors or maybe already are working with outside impact investors? Yeah, the regional feed mill project, uh, we're already working with other impact investors on that project. Another one would be we have been working with Patagonia and Rodale Institute and actually Will Harris as well on a project to launch a regenerative organic standard. Yeah, 
And, and, and that is taking kind of organics as a baseline and layering on top of that regenerative practices. You know, again, based on this larger agroecosystem thinking, uh, also incorporating animal welfare as well as farmer and farm worker fairness issues. So it's thinking about how these issues can be really addressed in, in one certification we, we know that that certification is, I mean, it's it's very much an aspirational standard and, and we, along with Patagonia, uh, probably will not meet the sort of gold level standard out of the gate. It's a goal, yeah. It, it was important to just put out there because there are so many players now that are using regenerative in, in many different ways. And we think that, you know, it's important to provide our definition of what it is and provide the specific practices and the specific metrics and the specific outputs that really would define regenerative organic agriculture. You know, timing wise, we see, I mean, you've heard the term eco label fatigue, where consumers just or label fatigue in general. Yeah, yeah, there's just too many certs and labels out there right now. And because consumers really don't think in terms of just one issue area, it's it's not like they're interested in fair trade, but they're not interested in organics or they're interested in animal advocacy, but they're not interested in the environment. It's all, I mean, I think most consumers are interested in purchasing products from companies that are doing the right thing on all those levels. But having said that, the standard is only one piece of the puzzle for farmers and ranchers. And so we're working with Patagonia right now to establish financing a vehicle that would support and assist farmers that want to adopt the standard and and want to move to uh, regenerative organic operation. I mean, it's obviously very much situational in terms of what that farm needs. It, it could be a working capital issue. It could be equipment financing, or it could be a land issue. Like the, the, the example of white oaks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is in the works right now, but we are looking to establish a fund that would um, support farm operations. And would it be open to others, to other investors as well? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Super interesting. We'll take the first step in terms of organizing this. I think we'll be playing uh, a sort of GP role here, but we're very interested in connecting with other impact investors that, uh, that, that see potential here. It's interesting how two privately owned companies or family companies like yourself and Patagonia are really pushing the boundaries and both of them are not from the, the food sector originally. Of course, you are active in it because you, you set up this project in Sri Lanka and now getting really active in it and Patagonia has its food products and also the fund. Um, but originally it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the original product, but you're becoming the really the the, the the, the two that are pushing the boundaries there it's fascinating yeah it's it that's a good point and um a few people have pointed that out to us so kind of interesting do you get any pushback from from customers that that say well, why are you pushing so hard on the animal agriculture piece i'm i'm, I'm vegan and i'm buying the soap um what, what's the, or from internally as well pushback on this agriculture focus like stick stick to the soap and uh, and and that's and clean it up as much as possible or or is that generally is is everybody uh, on board with that um that broader focus that you have now we see 
allies there. We see a connection forged between those folks that even if they are vegans, they want to work more closely with the people that are involved with animal agriculture in a broader sense. So, for example, Will Harris, uh, Will works very closely with Compassion in World Farming and whose director is is a vegan as well. And you just have very unlikely allies here, but it's becoming the norm, I think, that these different organizations coming from very different movements are seeing the importance of linking their efforts and, and teaming up to cause significant change. And 99% of uh, meat in the U.S. is still produced by CAFOs and, and industrial ag. So we can argue on the fringes about veganism versus uh, a more humane, regenerarian diet. But the point is that the, the common enemy here and, and the, the, the common challenge is to really eliminate CAFOs um, and industrial ag in general. CAFOs being factory farms, right? That, that's correct. Yeah, I, I see that. that this, like you said, the discussion on the fringes um, is about that 1% of grass fed or, and, and of course there needs to be a huge push to make that regenerative and, and at the same time reducing our meat intake and, and dairy intake significantly. But we cannot deny that the main enemy, quote unquote, is the animal factory farming system both here in, in Europe as well in the US. I think there are some differences, but in the end, the majority or a high 90% comes out of that system and, and has run its course, has run in so many issues, apart from even, even the animal welfare part, which is hugely important, but just the environmental part and the social part of the factory workers and the animal and the, the farm workers already makes it the, the highest target, basically, on the list of agriculture change. And I can see that now. I can see it with investors I talk to there, the people in, in, in the UK, Jemery Collar Foundation, who are really showing just from a, an investor point of view the risks you're running if you're exposed to that and, and the, the scandals that are just coming one after the other and, and we haven't seen the end of that. So it's very nice to see that these unlikely allies are are getting together and, and focusing their energy and their significant energy and, and time on, uh, on, on taking on the, the real beast in the room. You know, depending on which study or, or, or research you reference, um, food systems and agriculture contribute somewhere between 20 to 40 percent of total GHG emissions globally. And as Paul Hawkins stated, these industries have the greatest climate change impact, both as, as a source of the problem and, and as well as a potential solution. That's exactly the reason I'm doing these podcasts. That's the, the biggest leverage point we have or the biggest note in the system I mean, of course, we have to change all our energy to renewable, etc. But we also have to draw down, like Paul Hawkins is saying. And, and the biggest note we have, the biggest acupuncture point um, is agriculture and how we use land. And we've been misusing that or, or mistreating that, I would say, for way too long. If you look at his the Project Drawdown book, um, it lists the, the 100 most impactful solutions uh, to, to global warming of the top 20 Eight are food and agriculture related. And the other one is, is education of girls in Africa. Yeah. Which we're doing. Yeah. No, I mean, probably you're doing all 10. No, fascinating. And, and to ask a personal question, how did you get to Dr. Bronner and get into the regenerative agriculture space? My wife and I were part of a founding team that 
launched a hemp food company back in the early 2000s. And through the hemp food company, we developed uh, the first hemp protein powder and the um, first hemp milk. And Bronner's has been supporting the legalization of industrial hemp in the U.S. for, for many, many years. So that's how we connected with the Bronner's. And I was also part of a, um, an apparel manufacturing company. That was really my primary day job. And we ended up selling the hemp food company. And then my wife started working for Dr. Bronner's, and, and she's now marketing director. And I was continuing working with my apparel manufacturing company. And then my partner was diagnosed with cancer and passed within three months. And I sort of stepped back from everything and was trying to kind of figure out next steps. And I was lucky enough to get to be involved with a consulting project for Bronner's on the supply chain front. One thing led to another. Now I've been full-time with Bronner's for, for almost five years. And in terms of the impact investing piece, that's something, like I said, is relatively new for Bronner's and something that I've been advocating for just because in addition to that, you know, that the, the nonprofit work and the policy advocacy work, I, I definitely see impact investing as a, a, another tool in the arsenal. And so, and, and of all the different issue areas, the most logical place to start that type of impact investing is really within within that agricultural space because you have lots of opportunities with companies that are looking to make change. It's a little bit easier with agriculture than it is in drug policy reform or criminal justice reform. I can imagine, yeah. You cannot do too much to divest from prisons, yeah, in terms of investing. Yeah, I mean, it's really just a, a, a timing thing. It, it worked out really well. And I, I feel, uh, yeah, I feel very, very privileged to be doing this kind of work and, and, and also working for a, a company like Bronner's. They're, they're pretty unique. I don't, I don't, I, I spent my entire career uh, working on my own uh, with my own entrepreneurial ventures. Um, this is the first time I've worked for a company and, um, And I don't, I couldn't see myself working for any other company. So it's, uh, uh, I think you picked a very special one. Yeah. So to, I want to be conscious of your time to end this, this podcast, I would like to ask a question. So let's imagine there's a full room of, of smart impact investors listening to, to this podcast that are interested, ready to get into regenerative agriculture. And I imagine you, maybe you can speak a bit more on the US side, but also maybe a bit general where should they start? What should they look out for? What would be your, um, of course, not investment advice, but your advice in general for investors that want to get, get into this space? I was just at a regenerative economy conference uh, last week in, in Northern California, and I met a gentleman by the name of Spencer Beebe, and he's the uh, founder of EcoTrust, which is uh, based here in Portland, Oregon. And he mentioned this idea of place-based investing. To me, it really resonated just because when I look at our supply chain projects and I look at even projects like uh, White Oak Pastures, it's very much about looking at that entire living system on a case-by-case -case basis. And, and rather than thinking in terms of portals or industries or asset classes or anything else, Think about what's going on with that particular locale and, and what are the elements and how can we grow the capacity of that system to evolve and become more resilient, more biodiverse, more healthy, 
more value creation overall. And so it just struck me that, you know, when we think about impact investing in many situations where we're sort of segmenting things in a very traditional way and, and, and maybe sort of rather than kind of maximization or optimization for one element or one species or one metric or one commodity, we, we think about the impact of the entire system evolving and improving. Th- that, that to me is a really kind of powerful way of, of thinking about uh, impact investing within the regen ag space. Obviously, this wouldn't necessarily apply for all other industries, but I think for regenerative ag investing, it's a really powerful lens through which to think about things. It, it, and it, it is really the the you know this sort of maximizing for a single variable that's what has been at the heart of the problem with with industrial ag here in the states and when you do maximize for that single variable that's when things get thrown out of balance so when you think about a soy corn monoculture or kfo or a fast food chain everything is about maximizing yield or profitability or efficiency and it becomes this race to the bottom because you're ignoring all of those other social and environmental externalities that you're creating. And and eventually the, the system fails. I mean, it, it collapses. And, and I think that we're very close to that point with agriculture in, in the U.S. I, I think it was the uh, it, it was the FAO um, that just recently published an, a research showing that we have only 60 harvests left. If we continue to deplete the the, the soil, mine the soil basically at its current rate, and, and then we're done. I mean, there's no more soil-based agriculture, and it's I think partly due to this extraction mentality and and unidirectional mentality that we've we've adopted with our agriculture. And looking at it in in this more holistic way is to me a, a lot more powerful. And and you have. You know, quite a few thinkers out there, John Fullerton and, and Carol Sanford, that are providing frameworks and models for how to think about a regenerative system. And I feel like we're well along on that path. And uh, I mean, you just have different folks coming up with different metrics and different definitions. And um, we're really about creating case studies that work and demonstrate that, you know, a certain type of agricultural system is viable commercially. And I think we've proven that with our own supply chain projects, but you also see it with Will and, and, and White Oak Pastures. So the way that he's impacted that community of less than 100 people, he's created 140 jobs. Uh, he's building housing for his employees. The average hourly employee makes, and these are hourly employees, not management employees, makes $36,000 a year when the average income in that county is 18000 a year. And then what he's done in terms of animal welfare, I mean, for him, it's, it's all about how these pieces work together. And I think that both he and, and certainly we very much are investing to be able to create systems or models that are replicatable. I mean, Will is such a high-profile rancher here in, or farmer in the U.S. that I think that if we can close the loop on the feed issue, then that's something that 
we want to be able to prove to other farmers and other natural product companies, food companies, as well as consumers, that this is doable. And it's very much open source. So there's nothing proprietary here. We, in our projects, welcome the opportunity for anybody. And, and we've had our, our really our closest competitors come and, and visit our operations. And we're happy that when that happens. And and I'm sure Will is happy to, to have visitors come and, and see what's going on on his farm. And And so how do we roll this out? And how do we take this and repeat it and, and repeat it over and over and over again to get from that one to 99 is going to require a lot of work yeah i should say the we are doing our impact investing but there's also there's other kind of nonprofit ventures that we're supporting as well gay brown who is probably the top crop regenerative farmer in the country and he's supporting us on the project with will will is a livestock guy and and Gabe is coming in and, and, and helping us develop the the right sort of uh, rotations and the right sort of stocking densities to make this project work with Will. And Gabe just launched along with three other partners uh, what's called the Soil Health Academy. And it's a nonprofit venture and it's farmer to farmer training on regenerative practices and principles. And we're supporting that effort. He and his partners are going around the country doing trainings specifically for farmers, but also, you know, corporations and, and nonprofits as well on really kind of how-to practical advice uh, in terms of uh, adopting uh, these principles. So, like I said, there's there's more than one lever to pull and, and we have to fire on all cylinders at this point because we're, we are in crisis mode. Definitely, no. I mean, the, the 60 harvests left, means we have only a few years to get these systems up and running because they take time and, and it takes time to build up soil and we definitely don't want to reach number 59 or 58 because it means we're out of time. To your question about where should impact investors start, if, if they're just trying to get a lay of the land of what is regenerative agriculture about and, and what are sort of the, the main issues related to land management and soil fertility, There's a new book out by Josh Tickell called Kiss the Ground. And there's also a, a movie by the same name that's going to be launched sometime, I think, in Q1 of next year. The book itself is an excellent primer on these issues and very well written and very accessible from a non-technical, non-farmer perspective. So I, I think people would really get a, a, a good basic understanding of the key issues um, involved with Regen Ag. And then there's uh, another book by David Montgomery called Growing a Revolution. He's the next one to interview. I have a lined up probably or next week or the week after. Yeah, Both of those are, are fantastic kind of intro uh, lessons into Regen Ag. Perfect. Les, I don't want to take any more of your time. We, we've gone almost over the hour. But I, I want to thank you so much for, for sharing the stories, for the examples, for your lessons learned, your advice. And I'll definitely be checking in and checking in on the different projects you mentioned, but also on the projects that are, 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 are to come in the future. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, really enjoyed talking to you. You just listened to an interview with Les Zabo. I hope after this interview you understand why a soap company is so much involved in the regenerative agriculture space. 
Thank you for making the time to listen to this podcast and making it all the way till the end. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.